Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Kerry Mayer, best-selling author of The Paris Bookseller, in conversation with Fiona Davis, the New York Times best-selling author of The Magnolia Palace. They'll discuss their work, lives, passions, and creative process. They cover it all, from the magic of historical fiction to their mutual love of hoop skirts. Inspiration starts now. Hi, Fiona. Hey, Carrie, how are you? I am good. I'm so excited to be here with you because I was actually just thinking that it was two years ago that you and I were sitting at a coffee shop in New York City, (laughs) live. (laughs) I was there for an event for my last book, The Girl in White Gloves, and you were, I think, between books. Is that right? Remind me. I think so. Yeah, I think I was in between books. And I think that's when you told me about your latest book. Right. The one that just came out, the Paris bookseller, right? I know. And and I I heard about it and I said, that's it. That's a great, that's a bestseller right there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I can't complain. It's done well so far. And it's just been so rewarding to know that so many people are buying it through their own independent bookstores because it's about Shakespeare and Company, which is probably one of the most famous independent bookstores. Um, and now you have a book that just came out as well, The Magnolia Palace, which is also like, I just see it everywhere. It's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That just came out in January and it's been great being able to travel around and talk about it and do Zooms and talk about it, as you know. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's terrific. So, so you know, I'm so excited to chat with you because we get to ask all the questions that we might not otherwise. And and how did you start writing about real women? Tell us about how that all came about and how that relates to this latest book. Yeah. So, so this book is about Sylvia Beach, the very real woman who in 1919 opened the original Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris and also published the very first edition of James Joyce's novel Ulysses after it had become a banned book. But she's actually, as you know, my third real woman uh, heroine. The first was Kathleen Kick Kennedy and the the Kennedy debutante, and the second was Grace Kelly and the girl in white gloves. And so it's sort of funny. I don't, it's sort of by happy accident that I came to write about real women. I mean, I remember reading The Paris Wife when it first came out. I was in a book club of like new mothers uh, in my town in Massachusetts, and I just loved The Paris Wife. But I had no particular subject of my own to, to write about at that time. I just kind of filed it away in my mind under good to know, like this kind of novel is possible. And then a few years later, I stumbled on the subject of Kathleen Kennedy. And I just thought, gosh, what an amazing story. And I kind of ultimately put two and two together. Amazing story, The Paris Wife, a book like The Paris Wife, and thought, hmm, I wonder whether I could write a novel like that. And it turns out it's a genre that I absolutely love. Um, So I'm glad I I figured it out. And, 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 you know, my big question about that is, you know, Paris and France and and dealing with, you know, the French, I've I've always been terrified of that because I don't speak French. And and so were you were you nervous about that or are you fluent in French? How, How did that work into it? Oh, no, no. No, no, <laughs> I should say. I am not fluent in French. I did take French in high school. And um, yeah, it was it was scary, actually. I mean, 
I think it, it did help that I had a tiny bit of background in the French language. Um, and I had been to France before, um, and I was able to go to Paris in the early stages of research for this novel. So all of those things were helpful. The other thing that was helpful in this case was most of my main characters were Americans in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the no, with the notable exception of Adrienne Monnier, who is, you know, Sylvia's um, romantic and business partner. Um, but she's an American loving uh, Parisian. <laughs> uh, so, so she, um, and I was able, fortunately, many of her memoirs have been trans, uh, translated. So I was able to read them and feel comfortable, um, representing her as a character, but it was a little nerve wracking. <laughs> it must be said. <laughs> oh, I bet. It, it, but you captured it so well. And the, the sense of history and the sense of place, uh, oh, so, you. so beautifully. Thank- well, th- speaking of place, that is sort of your your thing is is places, specific places in New York City buildings. So I've always wondered how you came to write about New York City buildings. Yeah, you know, I didn't think I'd be writing a book of fiction. You know, that just hmm. wasn't. I was a journalist and I wrote articles, and I just stumbled upon this story about about the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which had gone condo. And, you know, I just thought as a journalist, what a great story, what a great way to show how the city and the the residents of this one building have changed over time. Because, you know, way back when it was this wonderful place where, you know, cultured young ladies could stay while they worked or studied in New York. And you had Grace Kelly and... and, Yes, um, exactly. Sylvia Plath. So many amazing women stayed there. Yeah. And, And, you know, then it went condo. And when it when that happened, they put all the, there were about a dozen of the old time residents still living there and they moved mm. them into rent controlled apartments on the fourth floor and built luxury apartments around them. And I just thought, what's it like when the woman who's like 85 and feels like she runs the place runs into the guy who bought the $17 million penthouse, you know, when they're in the elevator together, Gosh. what's that like? Right. And I thought, oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But the women at that time were very private and I couldn't get interviews. And it's one of those things, it's like you, I couldn't shake it. I was thinking, oh, you know, what what if I made this into a book and then I could create what I want out of the research that I do? And and that's what became the first book. So it was really just kind of stumbling into a story idea. And after that, thinking, well, that was fun. Maybe there's another building I want to go snoop around. So Yeah. Did you, like, have, like, a secret file on your computer? <laughs> I did. <laughs> about when I discovered this, when I stumbled on the story of Kathleen Kennedy, honestly, by watching a television show. It was a documentary series about the great manor houses of England, and one of the houses was Chatsworth House. Oh, And, yes. like, for two minutes of the one-hour episode, they talked about how um, – John F. Kennedy's younger sister, Kathleen, stood to inherit the house if she married the future Duke of Devonshire. Um, and I just thought, wow, there's a story there. And so the next day I went deep down the Google rabbit hole and I created this like secret file on my computer that I would like open when I needed to escape from whatever other thing that I was trying to accomplish. <laughs> yes. And you, I didn't tell anyone, especially the first book, I didn't tell anyone that I was trying to write a book. I thought that was so pretentious. You know, <laughs> <laughs> did you write the? How far did you get into the writing of the book before you finally told people? Um, probably pretty far. I think not even until I got an agent. I just didn't want. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It just felt, you know, because if it didn't work out, I didn't want people saying, "Oh, you know, how's your book going?" And, and think, well, it's in a drawer. Which most, you know, that's what happens. 
a lot. That but is it's so what funny. happens. It's so funny you mentioned Chatsworth House because I think that's one of the reasons I love old buildings is okay. because when I was a kid, we would go back to England to visit all our relatives who lived there. And we drive all over. And I remember specifically, we stopped at Chatsworth House to kind of let us run around and me and my brother, you know, burn off some energy. And it, we, we wandered through the hallways and it was just like, man, people have lived here for 15 generations. You know, what, 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 a, the, the idea of history just hit me full on from Chatsworth House. And I really think that's where it came from. Yeah, you know, it's funny how we sort of look back on these pieces of our lives and like realize that the seeds of the historical fiction writer that were kind of planted young. Um, another funny side note about Chatsworth House, I don't know if you follow them on Instagram, but they no, also, I a, f- a few years ago, they adopted a lovely golden doodle who <laughs> they named Henry, who they launched their, he launched his own Instagram page called Chatswoof. <laughs> I love it. Right after this, I'm going to go follow him. Yeah. yeah, because and there are just like magically beautiful photos of this like dog romping around the grounds and inside the house and having the zoomies and all. And it's actually a great way to explore the the exterior and exterior of the estate. What a good idea. They should put a camera on him, actually, and just, you know. They should. <laughs> the Henry Cam. That is the so Henry well. Cam. What, what, what for you were the biggest challenges in terms of writing not only the first book but even the subsequent ones what what to you was the toughest part of it you know with you know i think for each one i had a little bit and this was the the biggest stumbling block was for the first one was you know at the time like you well this has some things in common with your story, but it's also different. I was I had been identifying as a fiction writer for my entire adult life. So, but I had five unpublished novels. So when I came to write the Kennedy debutante. And so, like, I had never written historical fiction before. And so there I am, like with this idea. And and I was just like, who am I to write about the Kennedys? I'm just like some housewife with five unpublished novels in her attic. And 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 it was funny because what happened then was as I was really grappling with this, and at that stage, I'd done a lot of the research. I had ideas for scenes in mind. I was kind of ready, but I just was like, am I really am I really going to put words in John F. Kennedy's mouth and like Rose and Joe and all of them? And two of my writer friends from very different parts of my writing life who will probably never meet themselves said to me almost the same exact thing. They both said, Carrie, it's your novel, isn't it? <laughs> and that was very liberating to me. And I've I've had to, I've really reminded myself of that with every single book. You know, um, I found it was I was that that point able to kind of set aside my fears and write about the Kennedys. In the case of Grace Kelly, you know, Grace Kelly herself, but also, you know, Alfred, there's a scene, a couple of scenes with Alfred Hitchcock and Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a little intimidating. And then when it came time for the Paris bookseller, I mean, really. Ernest Hemingway and James Joyce and Gertrude Stein. I mean, it's really a good thing I didn't write that one first because I think I would have given up. <laughs> I I had to practice by putting words in John F. Kennedy's mouth first. <laughs> I love that. And, and, you know, for me, it's interesting because the, the Magnolia Palace, the latest book, deals with real people for the first time where I'm, I'm, I'm embodying the Frick family, which was, yes. you know, the, fa- the father and the mom and, and Helen Frick, their adult daughter, and that was the first time I was dealing with real people 
who who were serious characters in a book. And I've had just recently because of that, a lot of people ask me, you know, did you have to get permission? How did you mm. handle dealing with a real person? And I always answer, well, you know, if they've passed away, it's okay. What What's your answer to that? I'm just curious. Well, I want to hear more about that, actually. I mean, so wait, before I answer, like, did, did you have like that sort of frozen moment of, oh my gosh, oh, yeah. this is a real person and like... So what, how did you get past it? What was, what, what did you tell yourself? Yeah. You know, normally I shy away from using real people. I'll, um, what I'll do is I'll, um, instead, you know, find out, uh, something that happened at a building, an event or, or, you know, a time period and kind of put fake people in it because right. I love an element of mystery. I love a plot that really moves and you can't always do that with real people. Exactly. <laughs> but with the Frick family, they were so interesting and, you know, huge contradictions and, and difficult people. And so I knew they'd make great characters. And, and I also couldn't do something about the Frick Museum without, you know, pretending like I'm not dealing with the Frick family. You just can't get around that. Right. Right. No. Yeah, you can't. Right. So you just sort of had to do it. Right. Like, I had and, to and do they, it. They were long dead I yes. mean, in, in their in your case. So that was good. You know, I think so I do get the same to answer your question. I do get the same kinds of questions. And I have had to deal with some people who are really alive, um, specifically and maybe only uh, Grace Kelly's children. Right. And, you know, I think truly part of part of my answer to you know you never have to ask permission um is is the is the actual answer um you know our books say very clearly and loudly and accurately that these are works of fiction um and you know i, I talk about i've talked about this a lot i think especially with the paris bookseller is that when you're writing historical fiction and biographical fiction in particular there's this tension you really have to be able to embrace that i i have embraced which is that we are trying to capture the truth and essence of somebody's life and thoughts and voice but also it is an interpretation of that that life. Um, and so my Sylvia Beach would be is different from yours if you were to write a book about her. My my Ernest Hemingway and James Joyce is different from anybody else's Ernest Hemingway and James Joyce, you know. So um, I love that, you know, and I love that that also creates space for other writers to cap to like walk on and, and take on the same subject if they want to. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And, you know, with with Helen Frick, she was notoriously very difficult. There was a, a there was an article in the New Yorker, a profile of her from 1939, that described her as a woman of extremely robust prejudices, hmm. <laughs> which really sums her up. And <laughs> and so so one of the really more satisfying things about putting the novel out there was that a lot of people didn't know all of her accomplishments. Hmm. Of course, a lot of people had never even heard of her. They'd heard of her father but not her. And she did so much. She created this art reference library that is one of the top ones in the world today. At the same time, she, she sounds like she was a really difficult person. And I love the fact that readers have reached out to me and say, oh, she's my favorite character. You oh. know, that you can, you can kind of embody someone who is, is difficult, especially a woman. And yes. yet have people say, yep, I, I connected with her in some ways yes. and other ways not, but I connected yes. with her. 
Yes. Well, you are so adept at handling complex characters and complex, you know, um, storylines. I mean, you're, it's always a dual timeline, which I love. And so, and there's so much that you're juggling in all of your books that really, um, you know, the buildings serve as this anchor, of course. Um, but there's a lot of complexity happening in and around, um, which is just one of the things that I think draws me and other, everybody else to your books. Yeah, it, it's fun to write. It's slightly head spinning, you know, and there are days that I have to drink a lot of wine at night in order to, you know. <laughs> Peel yourself of, off the ceiling. <laughs> yes, yes. And get rid of those, <clears throat> all those characters in my head who are still talking. Um, but yeah, it, it's fun. You know, what's fun is the next book I'm working on is more of one timeline. It, it starts and ends oh. in modern times, but the rest of it is really set in about three months in the 1950s. And that's oh. just such a relief. Oh my goodness! It's so, so you've much got fun. like a frame. You've got like a frame that's the contemporary exactly. frame. Yeah. Oh, can you tell us any more? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's set at Radio City Music Hall from oh. the point of view of a rockette. And, uh, yeah. So a I've been rockette. interviewing. I've been interviewing all these rockettes in their seventies and eighties, which is just great because they're. Oh. It's a real sisterhood, and they're really you know proud as they should be of what they did. So it's, it's great. It's, it's wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit what you're looking at? I can only, so just a petite, like a little bit. So I will tell you in contrast to my first three novels, and I swear that this was completely a happy accident that my first three historical novels were about American women who went to Europe um, because then I got to go to Europe as part of my research (laughs) process. Um, But so the next one, we stay in America and it's set in the Chicago in the early 1970s. But I had never been to Chicago. So I went to Chicago and I, I stayed with our, our mutual friend, Renee Rosen, who is yes. lovely and also yes. writes historical fiction. Um, and it turns out Chicago is my kind of town. <laughs> and why is that? What was it? Well, you know, have you ever been to Chicago? Yeah, just once or twice, not, not okay. for long. Mm-hmm. So it was surprising. A number of things were surprising to me about it. And I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it was an enormous city. And it reminded me of New York, actually, where I, I did live for a number of years, and I love New York. I, I guess I didn't realize how kind of skyscraper forward Chicago was going to be, um, and and really beautiful and gleaming, but also had beaches. <laughs> yes, that was so. Like I'm from California, where there where there are beaches. I mean, like, it, but even in Los Angeles, like the skyscraper, like that, the sort of skyscraper part of the city does not come all the way up to the beach like it does oh, no. <laughs> in no. Chicago. Uh. <laughs> so that kind of rocked my world when I saw that. I thought that that was amazing. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I can definitely see it. Yeah. I'm so impressed with you because you really do travel around a lot in your books. I love to travel. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I think, you know, the fact that, that the job enables me to do that or gives me an excuse to do it is just like one of the great, the great things about it. Um, so, but, you know, so speaking of, you know, how we do it, I'm sort of curious about what your process is like. And, um, like, do you, like, do you, you alluded to like, you know, having to like clear your mind at the end of the day. Do, are you writing in the second part of the day? Like, when do you write? Like, what's your, what's your day like? Yeah. You know, if I'm doing a first draft or I, I'll do that in the morning, cause mm-hmm. I find I can't write or face a blank page, you know, in the afternoon, I'm just too tired. Um, if I'm editing, I can do that anytime, but I definitely stop by about five o'clock. I don't, 
I don't work at night. I'm not a night owl at all. I'll wake up early and try and get something done when it's quiet. But yeah, and, yeah. and I, I love to edit. I think that's the, the most fun when you're kind of massaging the sentences into what they should be and filling in the holes and that kind of thing. I really don't like when you're facing the blank page and you have to create a scene out of nothing. I, I work off of an outline, but that to me is the toughest thing in the world. People can't see us, but I'm like noddering vigorously as <laughs> yeah. you're saying all of those things. And that's funny. I, not all writers would agree with us, but I'm very much the same. I There are days when I enjoy creating the scene out of whole cloth, but I too would rather be massaging something or or even cutting it and replacing it with something else. Like I do, and it's not until I really get to like 40,000 words in a draft that I feel like I can breathe that I, that I have like enough that like, it, it really is going to be a book, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, cause there's this worry, I think somewhere around 20,000 words. And, and just for people listening, our novels are right around a hundred thousand words. Would you, would you say yeah. I've had, yeah. yeah, I've, I've, I've been just under and just over. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at that, at that quarter of the way, Mark, i I, I still feel really nervous, <laughs> but at about halfway, a third to halfway, I start to kind of relax. And then once I have 80,000 words, I'm like, I feel ho- it's like I'm in the home stretch. <laughs> it's so funny because for me, that tipping point comes during the research phase where I'm researching oh. a building and I'm just hoping I can find a story to write about and characters mm. are coming up and ideas are for scenes are coming up, but I don't know if it's a real story yet. And it's not until I'm about three or four months into the research that I just hit this point and I think, okay, yep, there's a book here. And then I'm yep. so excited to see if I can get it down. Yeah. Um, and, and then for me, right around 75,000 words is when I hit the wall and I'm like, this is terrible. You know, uh, I should, I should yeah. just quit right now. There's And every time that happens and every time I have to remind myself, okay, push through it, you know, you'll be fine in another 15,000 words. <laughs> Yes. Um, do you have uh, do you have people in your life that can remind you when you hit that? Yes. Because I, I find that every time I hit that stage, I hit that stage usually a few times. Um, there's always a stage in the drafting and then there are multiple yes. times that it happens in the revision and editing process. And then by the end, you know, by the copy editing stage, I never want to see the book again. <laughs> yes. And I think no one will ever want to read this because it's so terrible. Like, like I'm so sick of it at that point. <laughs> and, and for me, it's like, Oh my God, I know this all, all this information so well. It's so boring. Yes. You know, right. this is the yes. most boring thing ever. And I have to remind myself, no, people don't know any of this. So it, yes. they might enjoy it. Let's keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> yes. So, but I, so I've, I have, I've had this, you know, this same partner, romantic partner in my life for almost three years now. And like, he's getting to, he's been through a couple of books with me at this point. So he's able to say, you know, you were like this the last time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I'm yeah. like, really? I was, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so funny. Cause my, my boyfriend of three years is a writer. And so like right now he's off in his office, you know, writing away. And so we can both come out for lunch and be like, okay, where are you? How's it going? And he (laughs) understands completely what, whatever phase you're in or or whatever. And it's, it's so helpful because, you know, he'll say, I'll say, oh, it's just, you know, I'm not sure about this. And he'll say, you know, you've done this six times already. (laughs) You can do it one more. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But why, what is it about the doubt? Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. it's just, I think it is just. Every every historical fiction writer, at least that I know, 
encounters it, at, you know, at least yeah. once, usually seven times. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's because you're compiling all of this information and trying to bring it to the present and make yes. it work in the present. There's, you're doing so much heavy lifting. Yes. And there are so many opportunities to, quote, get it wrong, you know, <laughs> like a fact, you know, a date um, and like just all hail the copy editors. Like, I think that that was my, the, my first go around. I didn't realize that the copy editor was also going to be a fact checker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's something in every every manuscript and it always gets makes it to be published with oh, there's always something, some little. Yep issue that has to be fixed in the next edition. And, yes. and you know, I, at first I would be panicked about it. And now I, I, I realize, you know, you can't. And, and if anyone comes up to no. you and says, oh, you got that wrong, I, I just want to say, well, you, you go ahead and write a book. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, that definitely has happened to me. Although I, I, I more often than not, I get people saying, I could never write a book. And my yeah. response to that is, I could never use Excel. <laughs> 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 yes, exactly. We all have our talents. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. You know, it's, it's 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 so true. But it's so nice. And one of the wonderful things about it is the historical fiction writing community is yes. so supportive and wonderful. And you know, if we're all in the same city, we all get together. It's it's you, you realize you're you're with a team, and and it almost feels like a collaborative effort because you can reach out to anyone and say, okay, I'm having a tough time here. What, what did you do? Yes, I, I, I have been just flabbergasted at and thrilled um, at how collaborative this community is. And yeah, I mean, we're all connected on Instagram. Um, you can email anybody, You and, and like you said, and pretty much ask for anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really, it's wonderful. Like, it's like the virtual water cooler, the virtual <laughs> historical fiction water cooler. <laughs> all of us in our hoop skirts, yeah. I know. <laughs> Oh my God, I want I wanted a hoop skirt so badly so when I was I. growing up. Oh my goodness, so did I. I wanted, oh did you did you wear Laura Ashley dresses and yes. pretend that you had a hoop yes. skirt underneath? Oh my goodness. You know, Little House on the Prairie was really big when I was growing up. And I Same. would put on my like Laura Ashley-esque dress and walk through like the meadow near us as, as like the opening scene. <laughs> there was something about going back in time that just appealed. Yes, no. yes, yes, yes. Are there, are there, is there photographic evidence of this, <laughs> no. Fiona? Thank goodness it was before the iPhone. <laughs> Can you imagine that would be my author photo. <laughs> yes, well, people would love that. You could recreate it. Well, you know, when like, what was it called last year? It was like Pioneer Girl Cheek or whatever yes. it was. It was yes. like Taylor Swift and her folklore album. And like that look came back. And yes. I just remember seeing lots of photos of like girls in like Laura Ashley type dresses. They were sexier than Laura Ashley's dresses. But right. like, again, in meadows, like with people running their fingers through wheat. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, we've gotten really far afield here. <laughs> I know, I know. Here we go. That is so funny. Well, let me ask you this. How are you doing in this kind of post-pandemic world? How, how are you managing in terms of writing compared to when your earlier books came out? Well... So I'm in the fortunate position that my my I have a daughter who was in third grade when the pandemic first hit. And so those first few months were really tough. She was suddenly, you know, in Zoom school and, you know, 
we, we've just like relegated that to a dark place in our memories that we don't go to. <laughs> but she she was able to go back to school last year in fourth fourth grade. And, and so I had already in my life gotten very good at writing in two to three hour spurts. And I still essentially am able to meet my my daily word count in approximately that amount of time. So while she was at school, even when she was at in the half day stage of, of hybrid school, I was able to kind of meet my word count and everything for the day. And then, as you know, once you're in the luxurious position of having contracted books like we do, um, I, sp- I would spend the rest of my day doing other things. And so I was able to kind of do interviews and answer emails and social media and all the other things and even edit to some extent when she was home. And even if she needed me or I needed to chauffeur her around and stuff. And one of the things that I really am happy about, and I I, I think this gets said quite a lot, but I think it's worth saying again, um, about the pandemic and post-pandemic are these Zooms and podcasts, conversations that we can have with people across the country. One of my really good writer friends is Elise Hooper, who lives in Seattle. I live outside of Boston. I was able to participate in her last book launch, you know, virtually, and I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise. And there are 7 million other examples. So I really, and you know, so this book launch, I did a, I was able to do a combination of in-person and virtual events, which feels really satisfying. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I was able to go down to South Carolina I think mm-hmm. we oh, yes, down we there. both did that. Yes. Lichfield Books. Yes. Yay, shout out. Yes. Yep. And that was that was so wonderful to be in a room full of real people and, and get yes. the feedback as you're talking and hear them laugh instead of just watching them laugh. Um, right. You know, that was just terrific. And, and the launch of, of Magnolia Palace was at Rizzoli Bookstore here in New York. And that was in real real life, which was, oh, it was great, but it is, is wonderful. It, you know, I was just asked to do a, a zoom in June with an author who has a book coming out and she'll be in Seattle. And so it, it's perfect. You know, you can, mm-hmm. I think it's a, the best of both worlds right now where you can catch any author you love without them having to come to your hometown. Yet at the same time, if they do come to your hometown, bookstores are, are starting to open up and, and do events again. Yeah. You know, I mean, independent bookstores and libraries have really, I was, you know, thinking back on it, it's amazing how fast they all really converted to virtual buying, virtual events, virtual um, everything. You know, they just put everything online. Um, And authors, we're we're just so grateful. I've been so grateful that we, that that happened and that, that it will continue to happen. Um, And Yeah. So, so I guess that's it really. I mean, as the world starts to open up, um, did your, did your writing routine change at all with the pandemic in lasting ways or short-term ways? Not really. You know, we, we both just kept on writing from home, which is what we were doing anyway. The one thing that changed was the research because I was able to get Mm. this behind the scenes tour of the Frick in January of 2020. But then of course in March, everything shut down. And normally I would go back multiple times to, right. to look at the building and, you know, from the inside and the outside and just, mm-hmm. you know, give, soak up the vibe of it. And of course I couldn't do that, but the Frick.org has amazing resources online, including a floor plan where I could step into any room virtually and get a 360 <gasps> degree view. 
And oh, cool. It saved the day. I couldn't have done it otherwise because I could go into the library and look around and go, okay, I'm going to talk about that painting. Or, you know, there's a scavenger hunt in it that uses all the artworks in the frick and sends characters kind of down this scavenger hunt to hopefully uncover a, a missing pink diamond known as the Magnolia Diamond. And, um, and I could pick out the works and know what rooms they're in and, you know, where are they located. And that was great. Thank goodness for that. Cause otherwise I don't think I could have done it. Yeah. People talk about, um, you know, when my, when our historical fiction colleagues haven't been able to visit uh, a city like yeah. Moscow, they're like, you know, Google maps has, is, is like a lifesaver for exactly the reason you're talking about. Like they have those 365 views. Mm. I have to admit, I am not very good spatially that way, but I guess if I needed to, I could really <laughs> like focus in and try and figure out <laughs> um, where, where I was. I was able to go to Paris in the summer of 2019 before the world shut down. And I'm well so grateful that yeah. I was, um, I mean, it was quite a, quite a few months before, but like I, I could have of course written the book without going, but I'm, I, I, I'm glad I was able to go. I hadn't been to Paris in more than 20 years. So, um, and what was really amazing was it was the same. <laughs> I, I mean, right. and, and I, t I took a, I took a, bookstore tour actually and I learned that one of the reasons it's it's much the same is because Paris supports like the government supports independent uh, ah. shops so ah. they, they literally in order to keep large retailers from coming in and establishing you know like an every other block Starbucks kind of situation like a lot of major metropolitan cities do so it, it was I was astounded at, at the extent to which Paris had retained its character um, oh, it's so interesting especially because here in New York you've had all these you know big box stores close and move out so because of the pandemic yeah and so that the character of the neighborhoods are changing and what's hmm. interesting is while there's some big empty storefronts some of the smaller ones are being filled by restaurants who otherwise not, might not have started up because they couldn't afford the rent. And so huh. it's almost like the city's just taking a step back and letting the mom and pop stores fill back in. That's which, great. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. But it's, it's and, and that's the thing about any city is it changes so dramatically yes. over time. And, and you know, I, I always, I, I, a historical, uh, architectural historian who I know said that, whatever year that you move into that city is the year that it becomes frozen in amber and is the perfect city. And after that, you know, you're, you're walking down the street going, Oh, I remember when this used to be this ah. it was so much better. And, and it's true in, in New York, people do that. You kind of remember the old city of the eighties when you first came there and, you know, it was dangerous, but it was so much fun. And, you know, you were young and running I around. I know. I lived in New York. When did I move to New York? It was 2000. I'm sorry, um, 1998. Um, and I lived in Brooklyn. Yeah. And, you know, Brooklyn was really undergoing big change. Brooklyn was becoming like the hot place. Like I lived in Park Slope, um, which has always, well, at least since the time that I was there, a hotbed of publishing. So lots of writers, editors, um, all kinds of publishing folks live there. Um, and then I, and then I moved to Borum Hill, which also, um, also a very creative kind of area, sure. but I've been back to those places since I, I left quite a long time ago, but boy, does it look different, but you're right. It is totally frozen in amber in my memory as something else. 
So since we both love to travel, we're going to take a brief break to hear from a sponsor, and then we'll pack for a metaphorical trip to a desert island. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers. So you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type. And once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Always Authors supports independent booksellers around the country. And on this episode, we'd like to give a shout out to Bank Square Books in Mystic, Connecticut. Locally owned, fiercely independent. We love that. So Carrie, here's the question. If you knew that I was going to be stranded on a desert island, what three books would you recommend I bring with me? Or what would you send, what books would you put in my backpack along with my carving <laughs> knife and my water bottle on my desert island trip? <laughs> and your Advil. <laughs> um, okay, so I, 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 I'm, I'm taking a very lighthearted um, uh, approach to this, my answer to this question. And the, my first answer is one you might have already read. It's called Loving Frank about Frank Lloyd Wright, um, because you are such an architecture person. <laughs> um, so so if, if you have read it already, I hope it's a book you'd like to return to. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, it was a book also that I have to say many people recommended to me when I first started writing historical fiction, they were like, you might want to check out Loving Frank because it was another book like the Paris bookseller that kind of took the life of real people and novelized it. Um, so, so that's one. Um, another one is Buildings Across Time, an introduction to world architecture, <laughs> which I have to say I found by looking up architecture textbooks. <laughs> But I thought that you would probably enjoy looking at beautiful pictures of beautiful buildings all over the world and that it might like inspire you, um, you know, to write a book set in Tokyo or something. I'm going to go get it now. Lot. Never mind the desert <laughs> island. Yeah, there you go. And then the other one is a little bit closer to home for me. Um, and it is the the catalog for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, um, because of course, Magnolia Palace is all about the Frick Collection, which is one of my favorite, all-time favorite art museums. But I have to say, the Isabella Stewart Gardner might be my most favorite, um, and it's just um, a hop, skip, and a jump from where I live. And I would just die and go to heaven if you were to write a book set in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, um, because then we would get you here for a little while. So those are my three choices for you. Oh, I <laughs> love you it. Got, if you ever got off the desert island to, to write about the <laughs> yeah, Isabella yeah. Stewart Garden Museum. 
<laughs> I love it. Those are great. All right. So what did you choose for me? Can't wait to hear this. Okay. For <laughs> you, um, one would be The People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks. It's a wonderful oh, right. book about a, a, a Jewish text that it's it's it starts in, in modern times in Sarajevo as there's a bombing going on and someone's saving this sacred text from a library. And then it travels. You find out how the book got there, starting from the Spanish Inquisition. And you just get these like pinpoints in time. So you have Venice in you know the Renaissance and, and these little steps that this book takes as it works its journey through. And it's all from the point of view of a researcher who finds things in the book that gives her clues as to where it came from, like the wing of a butterfly or it, oh. it's, it's wonderful. It's one, and it's a great audio book. So you would like oh, that. Oh, even better. That is yeah. perfect. I will yeah. definitely listen to it as an audio book. And then the other is this, this sleeve should be illegal, which is a book that the Frick just put out. And it's a collection of some of their favorite artwork from the Frick collection and essays by famous people who, oh. you know, write about why they love that particular, they, they get to choose what painting they love and then write mm -hmm. about it. And it's got just a whole host of interesting New York characters writing about it and um, just a, a fun way to look at a museum and a fun way to look at art. And you could spend hours doing that. And then my last thing, and this is kind of a cheat, is I would send you all of a complete volume of Shakespeare's plays. Oh, because perfect. it would be, you could, you'd never be bored right? You no. could read through, you'd find something different in each one. It's, it's Shakespeare and company, right? So exactly. it's the title. And, uh, yes. and yeah, I think that would be just a great way to, to, you know, spend your time is diving into Shakespeare's plays. Oh, it would be, I would actually, if I were ever to do college again, I would take all the Shakespeare classes. Yeah. So thank you. I love those choices for me. Those are fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. When, when you were growing up, was there, were, were there signs as a kid that you were going to be a writer? Did you know that right away? Oh, yes. I oh, yeah. wrote my first unfinished novel in fifth grade. Wow. What was it about? <laughs> it was about, it was from the perspective of like a normal girl whose best friend is blind. Ooh, wow. <laughs> and if you ask me where that came from, <laughs> I could not tell you. Um, but that is what it's about. And I started, I wrote it on my, I think I wandered into my parents one like Saturday and I said, I need some paper. And my dad handed me a yellow legal pad. And that is what I wrote it on. And I have no idea what happened to those pages. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So, well, so you started out, as you said, as a journalist. So, I mean, how did you know that you wanted to be a journalist or, you know, any kind of writer? Yeah, it was, it was a bit random. I came to New York and worked as an actress for about 10 years. So, you know, oh, hence been... the Chelsea girls. Yes. Yes. This is exactly. another one of Fiona's wonderful novels that right. I loved in the, in the world that the Broadway during the McCarthy era, which was yes. really interesting to learn about. And yeah, so that was a lot of fun and I had a great, great time. And then I just, you know, as I hit my thirties, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe there's something else I want to do. And I decided to apply to Columbia and just see if I got in and I got in and suddenly shot off on a different trajectory. And I seem to do that every 10 years. And I, I always say I highly recommend it. I think it's great to change exactly what you're doing every 10 years because you end up, you know, I feel like being a writer is the ultimate um, kind of satisfaction of everything else that I've done. There's a bit of acting in it. You know, there's writing in it. 
and researching and editing. And so, yeah, that, that's where it came about. But it wasn't something I'd planned on. Okay, so your fans and I are, because I'm one of your fans, are getting nervous now that we're coming up on the 10 years of you being a novelist. Oh, no. <laughs> so please, please don't leave us. No, no, I'm not going anywhere. It's too much fun. This is it perfect. Because I don't know about you, but I like mo- great amounts of time alone. Yes, me too. <laughs> and, yes. And I don't work, you know, I, I was a, an associate producer for a TV show for a short while and I was terrible at it. It was awful because there was just so much going on and my mind can really only, I can laserly focus in on one thing at one time, but juggling a lot just gets me very anxious. And so, you know, I quickly learned that was not what I should be doing Um, and that print is the way to go. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic, I think, has has appealed to the introvert in many of us and and shown many of us that in fact... (laughs) we don't like to be around a lot of people a lot of the time. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's okay. you know, it's, yeah and yeah. I think that the cycle of publishing is is great for me, at least, because I do get lots of time alone. Mm-hmm. And then I do get to also go to places like Litchfield Books and like meet yes. lots of people. And that's very satisfying. Um, so, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice combination. I completely agree with you. I love doing events. I love meeting meeting readers. I think it's fantastic. And then it's just nice to go home and kind of, you know, zoom in on whatever the next book is and, and, you know, have a day of just, just quiet. It's wonderful. Yeah. So it's a yeah. perfect and mix. And lots of reading, lots of reading. Yes. Yes. Of course. <laughs> yes. Is your daughter I a often... reader? No. <laughs> not yet. Not yet is the answer. <laughs> That's okay. Yes. So not yet. I think, you know, she's 11. Yeah. I think there might be a bit of rebellion in there. Like... <laughs> You know, so her dad and I are both big readers. So she's decided like, this is the one thing she's not going to do. <laughs> um, she does. She does love graphic novels. She reads graphic novels and she's gotten recently into Japanese manga. So, oh, um, okay. so there, you know, we'll see, we'll see where all that goes. Yes. So, and I'm, I'm a, I'm very much a reading is reading kind of, kind of person. Yes. Um, yes. Absolutely. I remember, I remember when I was about her age discovering Sweet Valley High and I, I feel I feel so good that Roxanne Gay wrote about also loving Sweet Valley High. I felt Aww. like, oh my God, it's okay. <laughs> but but my parents kind of like made this deal with me for that for like every three Sweet Valley High books I would devour, I would read like a serious something or other. Oh, but dear. but that was actually yeah. how I like discovered Jane Austen. Oh, okay. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah. it was all good in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. Who who are the authors who you're reading now? Who are you loving? <sighs> What am I, um, what have I been loving lately? Are you blurbing a lot? So you're kind of moving forward. No, I've actually sort of gone on a blurb hiatus because I'm knee deep in the revision for my next book. And I I needed to revisit some research, um, and some other things like that. So I really, um, I really needed to reserve my reading time. My one, uh, my main problem being a writer or the, my one wish for a superpower would be that I could read faster. I'm a, such a slow reader. Are you, how are you on the scale I'm, of I'm reading? I'm fast. Yeah. Oh, that's I, good. I, a little too fast sometimes. I, mm-hmm. I wish so much that I could read fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so my, all of my reading for pleasure actually takes place, um, on audiobook. 
Oh, great. Because I I listen to books um, while I'm walking the dog or making dinner or like puttering around and like folding laundry or, you know, what have you. Um, And, you know, there have been some terrific audiobooks I've listened to in the last year. Hamnet by Maggie O'Carroll was a fabulous audiobook. Did you listen to it or did you read it? I read it and I cried. Oh, it was so good. I'm right. It's yeah. so beautiful. And mm-hmm. the woman who reads it is this, like, you know, gifted British actress. Oh. I don't remember the name of the voice artist, but she was, I could have listened to her for the rest of my life. Yeah. And then another one was um, The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley. I hear that's hilarious. I haven't read it, but I heard great it things. It is a wonderful book. I recommend yeah. it in any format, but he, he reads it. Stephen wow. himself reads it. And and at first, I have to admit, I was like, oh, really? The author's going to read it? But within like a minute or two, I was like, oh, this is very good. And I haven't asked him, but he must also have experience in theater because yeah. his reading is just magical. It's yeah. wonderful. Oh, yeah. What about great. you? Um, yeah, you know, I've been doing a lot of blurb books, mm-hmm. um, but I loved and just came out as The Christie Affair. The Nina oh, book. yes. Yeah. Yes. About Agatha Christie's disappearance. That was great. And um, yeah, I was excited to get an, an early read of that, which is out now. And yep. uh, yeah, yeah. So just um, looking at some kind of fun things that are coming down the pipe. Cool. Yeah. And, is there, uh, can, can you give us like a can you give us a preview like? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, Jamie Brenner's book. Oh, her books are wonderful. Yes, yes. And that comes out in June. And oh, it's a fabulous read. It's just full of, you know, family dynamics and misconnections and and jewelry. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, her last book was Blush. Yes, about wine. Yeah. (laughs) About wine. Oh, yeah. No, I love her books and I look forward to them every summer. They, um, and she also, I went to a book talk that she did in one of her favorite places in Provincetown and she's just terrific to see live. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. She's really fun. Um, so I, you know, so, I actually, I have a couple more questions for you. I, that I've always sort of like, so uh, you're very New York focused, but did you, I can't remember. I think I know this, but remind me, did you grow up in New York? No, I, my parents are both English and I was born in Canada and raised in New Jersey and Utah <laughs> and then oh my went gosh. to college in Virginia. I don't think I did know York. this. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay. It's better not to know it. <laughs> it's crazy. We just, we, my dad is a chemi- chemical engineer and we traveled around depending on where he was transferred. Um, and so, yeah, a little bit of everything. And my parents are in Texas now. So Texas. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit of everything, which was interesting. I think one of the reasons I became an actress is, you know, you were learning how to be in a high school cafeteria in Salt Lake City. And then what's it like being in the one in New Jersey? And they're two very different experiences. So yeah. yeah. What about you? Are you, are you from the Boston area? Are you? No, I am not. Although, so I also did a little bit of moving around, um, which I think gave me a taste for, uh, 
different places and wanting to, to, to experience different kinds of places. I was born in California. Both of my parents are native Californians, which is sort of a thing I've come to realize. Um, but they, but they actually whisked me almost right away to Massachusetts where I currently live. So I spent the first eight years of my life in Massachusetts. So I have these very formative memories of like building snowmen and like all that stuff. Um, but then when I was eight, we moved back to California and I stayed in California all the way through college. And, and then I moved to New York after I graduated from college. So at this point, I've lived much, much more of my life on the East Coast than I ever lived in California. But I always identify as somebody who's from California. Like when people ask where you're from, do you say New York at this point? Do you just Yes. Yeah, I say I, I live in New York. I've been here for 35 years. So this is Right. Home. You have been here. Right. It is yeah. home. Because it's hard to yeah. pick where I'm from otherwise, because I'm not Canadian. I, I moved when I was three. Right, um, right. You know, right. yeah. So it's a little, it's a little tricky. And, and maybe yeah. that's why, you know, we write because like searching for identity in some way or, you know, it, I think that, that definitely something like that comes out of it. It's interesting. Yeah. And there's a California novel in me somewhere. Oh, I can't um, wait. I, you know, yes. I, I have definitely, I have thought about that, you know, earlier in my life, I did write about California and I, I wrote in, during my MFA years, I wrote some short, short stories that were set in California, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, I, I, as an adult, I, I seem to have gone to Europe, <laughs> like, you know, like I said <laughs> earlier, yeah. but yeah, no, not bad, but I do, I do want to return to, um, kind of the place that I grew up and, and it's very much in me. Um, I got to do it a little bit with the Grace Kelly novel because, you know, the Hollywood years, of course, right. she was, she spent them in California. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we'll see. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to do a, a book in London. That would be really fun. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. I spent a year. I did. I mean, the Kennedy debutante is almost entirely sure. set in London sure. and I spent a, wonderful undergraduate year, junior year abroad in London. Me too. um, So did I. Oh, you did? Where were you? Where were you? University of London. Where were you? I was at King King's College. Oh, yes. So we were all, yeah, it was all part of the same system, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was at Queen Mary. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I know. I was amazed when um, Marie Benedict's latest book came out that um, her heroine was doing her research at, at King's College right. on, on yes. DNA. I was like, yes. oh, my gosh, <laughs> I, I went there for a year. Right. <laughs> I loved that time. I, I had such a good time, you know. Me too. I, I Me too. fell in with a group of wonderful um, English, you know, because when you start, you're with your American other students Same. for safety. Right. And then you start branching out. And I ended up just with a a wonderful group and going to dinner parties and things that felt so English and fun. And oh, it was great. Same, 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 yeah. same. I, um, in fact, I, I'm still good friends with a few, uh, of the women I met that year. And, um, one of them, uh, because she lives in London and she's also a big traveler has the, the last two times I've gone to France on research trips, she's come to visit for a few Aww. days of my trip. And so we've been able to eat fabulous food together and see oh. beautiful things. And, uh. um, it's just such a nice thing, uh, yeah. to be able to share with your friends from a long time ago. Yeah. Uh. And give our characters. Yes, exactly. Inform our characters. 
Well, this has just been so lovely. I, it we has. could do this every day, really. I don't think they'd mind. We really they? could. Yeah. We, no, I don't think. No, I don't think anybody no, would mind. No. <laughs> maybe we'll be. Maybe we'll be invited back to do it again. Yeah, there we go. But thank you so much for chatting with me this afternoon. It's been great and uh, and more fun to come for both of yes. us. Hopefully, our paths will cross again in person and live. Soon. I yes. hope live. That yep. would be really wonderful. Yes. Thank you, Fiona. It was great to chat with you. You too. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers.